And while you're opening up, let me tell you about a story I once heard. I don't really know if this is true. Um, I, I don't know if it's true, but it certainly spoke to me. It was about an old, wealthy master about a hundred years ago who died and he left his servant, his slave, a large sum of money in the bank. And the slave received a banknote. His master had died. His master loved him so much. And, his, and that slave received a banknote and it informed him that he had inherited a sum of money from his master. And he had to come into the bank and sign documents. So the slave went to the bank with that note that he had received from the bank. And he got to a teller, and the teller immediately called the bank manager who sat down with him. And he explained to that man his inheritance. It was valued at over a million dollars, which was obviously an enormous sum in that day. It's an enormous sum today, but it was even more enormous in that day. And at the end of that explanation, the manager asked him, do you have any questions? Now, I want you to hear this, because this is going to factor into this message. The slave had never owned anything in his life. He was born into slavery. He simply asked the bank manager if he could withdraw 75 cents that day so that he could buy a sack of potatoes to make himself some dinner. He was in reality a millionaire, but in his mind he was a pauper living day to day. I fundamentally believe, truthfully, that there is a vast majority of Christians who do not realize the riches they have in Christ. And that life-transforming truth begins by understanding the good news that is found in the word gospel. So as you, your Bibles are open to Isaiah 52 and we get to verse 7, you're going to see that phrase, good news. But I'm going to ask you before we get there, if you would be able to explain to somebody, what is the good news called the gospel? What does it mean? Would you be able to explain that? Now, I'm really asking you to answer that question, in your mind at least. If you call yourself a Christian, if you have come to put your faith, resting and trusting and depending your soul on Jesus and what he has done for you on the cross and in the empty grave. If you have become a Christian, believed on God for your forgiveness and your salvation, believed on Jesus, if that's you... Would you be able to really, truly, adequately, robustly, beautifully explain what the gospel is? I'm going to tell you the majority of Christians, and I know this from survey after survey, cannot explain it. They could talk about Jesus. And they've got somewhere in their explanation the cross. But they cannot adequately explain it. That was true, by the way, of a conference several years ago of pastors who were asked in the conference to 
explain the, doc, the, the, the view or the understanding of the gospel on a piece of paper and submit it. Over 3,000 pastors submitted it. And the people running the conference, which was all about the gospel, evaluated every one of them. And by the end of that several-day conference, yielded the results. Less than 10 of 3,000 gave an adequate explanation of the gospel. That's pastors. We have a pastor in a church in Easton one time as they heard one of our pastors preach a message about the gospel came up to that pastor afterwards and said, can you explain to me the gospel? I don't understand that. I've never really heard about that. That's a pastor of a church in Easton. Can you really adequately, if someone, someone were to ask you, can you talk about, can you explain well, the gospel. Well, we talk about it all the time. We talk about the gospel a lot. You might have a friend that recommends a gospel preaching church to you. You might like to listen to gospel music. Maybe you remember the opening song of Disney's animated movie called Hercules. Remember the opening song called The Gospel Truth? Five ladies popping off of the side of, a, of an archaeological vase singing this, this song. What is the word gospel? How do you explain it? Well, let's start right at the, at the beginning. So this is a five-week sermon series on the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's just start right at the basic level of it. We're going to break down the Greek word for gospel. Euangelion is the Greek word. And when you break that down, you've got a prefix, E-U, which means good or pleasant. You've got angelos, which is, think of lost well, think of that place in California. I don't even want to say it actually called the City of Angels. But it's actually, angelos in the Greek means good message or good news. So in Old Testament times, the word gospel, the word good news, was used when a doctor would examine a sick patient and afterward would tell that patient, I've got good news for you. There's nothing seriously wrong. That was the beginning of this word that we use so liberally, so freely, called the gospel. That was certainly good news for the one who was sick. But it was used even in other applications. Think of when a a city would go to war and the soldiers would march out of the gates of that city and they would go to a battle. If you were alive during Desert Storm, you probably remember being glued to the TV so that you can get reports from the embedded reporters on what was happening, how the war was going. Well, they didn't have that luxury back then. What they had were watchtowers, and they had what were called watchmen. And they would stand on top of the watchtowers waiting for that army to dispatch a runner to go back to the city with news of the outcome of the battle. And so they were even trained, these watchmen were, to tell by the way that the runner was running if it was good news of victory or bad news of defeat. It's where this gospel word originated from that. So as we turn to the New Testament, it takes on a little bit more of a nuance. You've got Jesus in the Gospels. He's often using this word gospel. And what he meant by it was that there is good news because the kingdom of God has broken out into this reality. For Jesus, the gospel was about the kingdom of God breaking into this world. 
Yet for any person to have access to that kingdom, well, they've got to be delivered from their sins. This is what Paul meant in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God the Father has done that, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So it became in the epistles, when you get to Paul and Peter and and James and other writers after the gospels, the word gospel became a little bit more about Jesus bringing salvation. It developed this fully. It centered on the person of Jesus. So you really can't talk about the biblical gospel without talking about Jesus. That he was born among humanity. That he died on the cross. He rose to life offering forgiveness to any and all who would believe in him. And the result of that forgiveness was you are transferred from the kingdom of this world. And you are now put into the kingdom of God. With all the benefits that go along with it. That's the heart of the gospel. It focuses on salvation centering on the person of Jesus Christ. And his actions of his death on his cross and and resurrection. This is why Romans 1 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first And also to the Greeks. So let me sum up what we've just said. Because we're almost done with the introduction. And then I'm just going to give you two simple points from Isaiah 52. Here's what we've said. However, whatever era that the word gospel was being used. Old Testament, gospels, or New Testament church. It always meant good or pleasant news. And at the time of Christ, it evolved to where Jesus used it, that the kingdom of God was breaking into this world. The New Testament writers, Paul and Peter, adapted it, even evolved it, even strengthened it. It's all about Jesus, centers on the person of Jesus. And at the very core of it, it's about salvation. But its effects are much more than that. That's what this series aims to uncover. Just how extensive is the power of the good news of Jesus? Well, it would help you to know this before we go into this Old Testament text. I really want you to hear this, okay? I'm going to actually approach it in two different ways. I'm going to make this so, hopefully, clear and simple for you. The gospel holds over the entire Bible an interpretive grid. Let me say it one other way. It doesn't matter where you are in the Bible... You are in view of the good news of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it is so far away, it's on the mountain range, and you need the binoculars that Jesus, that the Spirit of God will provide for you. And if you look hard enough, you're going to see it, just traces of it. And sometimes it's right here in front of you, as Moses tells them to lift up a bronze serpent on a pole so that they won't die from the snake bite. Sometimes it's right in front of you, sometimes it's far away, but the gospel is all the way through the Bible, saturating it, Genesis to Revelation. It forms for us the interpretive grid. So when you open up your Bibles or when we get ready to read in Isaiah 52, you've got to understand it's going to be right in front of you all series. This one is easy to see. It's the interpretive grid. What Isaiah is showing us is the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you get to Isaiah, what you need to know about Isaiah, he is considered 
I think by everybody, to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. His name actually means, you might want to write this into the margin of your Bible, his name means Jehovah is salvation. If you're going to have a name, that would be a good one to be given. The first 39 chapters in Isaiah, this is super important for you to know, Somewhere, put this, either in your mind as an anchor or somewhere in your Bible, the first 39 chapters, Isaiah is talking about modern-to-his-day events. But then in chapter 40, he begins foretelling what's going to happen. Not only 200 years later, but 800 years later. There's a dual fulfillment in this. One is going to be talking about what's happening with Babylon in 200 years as they conquer Israel. The other layer is what Jesus will do on the cross in 800 years to free all people from bondage. So you've got that interpretive grid called the gospel. It overlays all of the Bible. You've got Isaiah who picks up in chapter 40 through the end of the book, chapter 66. Now he's talking about future events. Now he's talking about something that's going to happen in a couple years. So you need to know that what he is about to talk about in Isaiah 52, it has not yet happened. It will happen. He's prophesying it. And he's talking about salvation that will come to God's people. And that is what's in view in chapter 52. So here we go. Two points. Very simple. I'm hoping this is going to whet your appetite for the rest of this sermon series. Number one, God offers redemption to those in bondage. Now you probably want to start asking yourself, do you really understand what that word redemption means? And secondly, who exactly is in bondage? sort of a bit of an antiquated term. You only use it today virtually when you talk about addictions to drugs. So what is redemption? Who are those in bondage? We're going to try to uncover that. Let's look together. Here we go. Let's get into the exciting, living, and active word of God. Isaiah 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, a name for Jerusalem, Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. He's talking about future events. Babylon is not even a superpower at the time of Isaiah's life. Assyria is. Babylon will conquer Assyria. They will become the most powerful nation. And they will come against Israel. And they will conquer Israel. And they'll take them into bondage, into exile, hundreds of miles north and east back to the land of Babylon. That's what's going to happen in a couple hundred years. Isaiah is warning them. And this prophecy is about that exile that they had in Babylon, 70 years, God foretold. That exile, that bondage has come to an end. The 70th year is over, and he's telling God's people, awake, awake. Your bondage is done. You see, God's commanding them to wake up. 
to find the power of the Lord. You've got Jerusalem, you've got Zion, who was de- which was destroyed by foreign invaders. I mean, listen, they were ruthless. They knocked their walls down in rubble, which is why Nehemiah came into this earth to rebuild that, lead them to rebuild it. They took the temple of God, burned it. A lot of it was wood. They burned it. They knocked it down. They ruined and burned the entire city. It was in rubble by foreign invaders. So rise from your ruins, Jerusalem. Shake loose from your bondage. Leave the ruins of your life. Now imagine putting this in a modern context of someone whose life is destroyed by sin and they are in bondage to it. This is the gospel that overlays Isaiah, all of the Bible. It has absolute modern relevancy to us. Let me help you understand that. Imagine you're invited to visit a prison. And while you're there and you're getting this tour by one of the guards, you notice that several of the cell doors are wide open. And the prisoners are just sitting in there on their beds and they've got civilian clothes draped all over the place, but they're just remaining in their cells. Remember that, or rather imagine that. So you ask your guide, what was happening in these cells? Why are these prisoners in cells where the doors open and they've got their civilian clothes? Why are they there? And you're told by the guide that these are prisoners that were given a pardon for their crimes. And they're free to go. And they were given clothes and they were given money to be able to live on outside of prison. And you're puzzled. You ask, why aren't they going? And you're told by your guide that, they're, that when you're in prison for a long time, you don't really know how to see yourself any other way than a prisoner. So what do you do? With urgency, you walk into each one of those cells, you look at that prisoner, you hold them into their, your, with your eyes, and you tell them you can go. You are free. Pleading for them to get up, walk out of that cell, and live life. You know what you're doing? If you're in that imaginative analogy, you're declaring to them good news. And it's precisely what Isaiah declares to these men and women who are sitting in Babylon, been in exile for 70 years or however long they've been alive, and they won't go. They won't leave. Now, Christian, I'm going to speak to you for a moment. This entire message is aiming directly at you, obliquely at anybody that's not a Christian here right now. There are people in your life all around you. Listen, this is true of every one of us, myself included. There are people all around us that are in bondage to sin. And Christ can redeem them. He can set them free. And do you want to know the words that God, through His Spirit, will speak Into your unsaved loved ones, when he wakes them up, he will say these words. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, if you want a fancy theological word, that's called illumination. Simply put, that is the Spirit of God's job to click the light on in an unsaved person's mind. So that they can see the truth. You might have seen the movie The Matrix. 
where human beings are trapped inside of a simulated reality. It's called the matrix. And it's created by the simulated reality created by artificial intelligent machines. And these humans that are in this simulated reality are living life. They don't know the truth that they're actually being kept in pods and they're serving as the energy source for the machines because the 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 sun is blotted out there's no solar energy available so they're harvesting the energy from all of these human beings that are unknowingly in these machines and they're given the simulated reality that they're actually living normal and real life but there's a group of rebels Who've escaped their pods. They've woken up to reality. And they offer the main character Neo. Played by Keanu Reeves. A choice. He can swallow a red pill. Which will wake him up to the truth. Or a blue pill. That will return him blissfully to his simulated life. God does not offer a red pill to wake us up to the truth. He offers the mighty Word And it is called the gospel. If you want your unsaved loved one to be woken to the truth, then they must hear the gospel. Why? Because Romans 10 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Listen, you've got an unsaved loved one just pleading with them, begging them to turn to God. That doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the ability to click the light on to illuminate their minds. What has that power is your love that will share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. But you need to know what it is. Because every person, every person, every human being born into bondage to sin, and unless God wakens them, they do not even know it. Look at what it was for Israel. They were sold for nothing. Nobody profited from their conquering and their selling and going into exile. But they can be redeemed without money, meaning there's something else that will redeem them. It won't be hard currency that buys them out of, re, out of their bondage. It will be something else. What is that? Well, you need to understand first what the word redeemed means. It's one of my favorite words in the entire Bible. It means simply to be bought back. It means to be repurchased. Can you remember that? Please write it down. This is super important. You get to the text and you see that word redeemed or redemption. You're going to see it all through the book of Isaiah. Write it down. It means to be bought back or repurchased. And the Apostle Paul explained it super clearly, Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned, that's everybody, whether we like to admit it or not, we've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Grace is always a gift. How? Through what means? What's the currency? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a payment, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So really, the price of redemption is the blood of Christ. That doesn't mean that somebody stuck a syringe in him 
and extracted a pint and splashed it against the cross, that would have no effect. That means you must die. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. It means your blood must spill to the point of death. God, in the, in the person of his son, Jesus, must die. That's the payment. That's the propitiation. That's the means of redemption. So you've got this incredible word, redemption, but I've got to give you a little bit more. It's so exciting. It was used in two main ways in the biblical times. Here's the first, war. Now listen, I'm going to tell you something. If you're, if you're in the army in the Old Testament, it was very clear what your objective was. Ultimately, to win the victory, to get the victory, win the battle, but penultimately meaning, penultimately, meaning next to the ultimate, just below it, it was to capture as many of the enemy as you could alive. You didn't want to kill everybody. This is your cash cow. Military victories were the greatest influx of money that you could imagine. They would capture these people, and then they would write a note called a ransom note. You're all familiar with that concept. And they would send it to that person's family. I'm holding your husband. I'm holding your son for ransom. Here's the price you must pay if you want to redeem. You want to buy them back or repurchase them. You've got to pay the ransom price. The one who paid the price becomes the redeemer not simple it was also used in slavery if you were a slave in israel you had god's protection over you and i'm going to tell you what the how the majority of people became slaves in israel the majority actually volunteered to become a slave because that year their crops didn't grow. And their family's going to starve unless some wealthy benefactor will give you a loan. And the way that you paid that loan off is to become in their debt as their slave. And you would work as their slave. You would, use, you would work their fields and you would work your fields. And you would do that until you paid off the debt and you could repurchase or you could buy back your own freedom. You became the redeemer in that context. In either case, the one who paid the ransom price is the redeemer. And the one freed is transferred from his former captivity, now belonging, you got to hear this, to the redeemer. Did you hear that? I'm going to teach you something that, in my view, too many Christians don't understand. Romans chapter 6 Verse 22 says that we have been freed from slaves to sin, set free to become slaves of God. See, the gospel, the good news, is all about God paid the ransom price in his son Jesus by dying on the cross. His blood shed for us. He's the redeemer. He paid the ransom now he rightfully owns us, and we lovingly, wonderfully yield to our Lord and Savior. He's not just our Savior, he's our Lord and Savior. He's our master and benefactor. Therefore, our lives belong to him to serve 
him the rest of our days, which, look at that Romans 6 passage, is the means of our sanctification, growing in Christ. You see, every human being is born into exile from God. In a bondage to a power that is greater than us. <coughs> all those beautiful babies that are being born in our church. And all those that are going to be born in our church. Can I say this gently, especially to first time moms. Your baby, the one that you're going to be holding, is unavoidably fallen has a sin nature. And though they lack the capacity when they're first born for that fallen nature to express itself, it won't take long to happen. <clears throat> Why? Because they inherited a sin nature. They're born into bondage and their hope is the one who can redeem them. This is why we dedicate children that's why we teach their families to teach them the good news of Jesus Christ. That it might one day, we pray, awaken them. Tell them to rise. To believe on the one who offered himself as the ransom price to buy us out of bondage. So that the rest of our lives and for eternity, we would belong to the most kind, wonderful, loving, faithful master you could ever imagine. Who's left us more than a million dollars in the bank. He's left us the very riches in Christ. So live as people who are free, First Peter said. And do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. But live as servants of God. So the first point is simply this. God offers redemption to those in bondage. By the way, if you have somebody that you love. That is in bondage to their sin nature. They do not yet, they have not yet come to Christ. Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a co-worker, a fellow student, a friend. You've got great hope. But listen, your great hope is that you have the responsibility and the privilege to proclaim the good news. And it is the good news that can wake them up to faith. So how beautiful are your feet? And that's point number two. The redeemed have the honor and responsibility to proclaim the good news. Verse seven, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings Good news. Do you remember what I told you about the word gospel from the Old Testament? Can I remind you just quickly? Do you remember the image of the watchman on the walls? Scanning the horizon in the direction of the battle. Waiting for the runner to come. And he could tell by the way that he ran. By the way that his feet were moving. If he's running with loping strides. That was always trained to know that it was good news. If he is shuffling along in despair and defeat. They knew it was bad news. They were trained to discern the difference by the way the runner is running. Look at the way verse 7 says it. How beautiful Upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. We're looking at the feet. 
That runner enters the city and says to all the people, our king is returning victoriously. And the entire city would have a celebration. That's the good news of the gospel, that we have the privilege to share with those desperately needing our Savior's redemption. That Jesus overcame death on the cross. He rose to life. He has sat down now at his Father's side. And he reigns over everything. Everything is under the omnipotent, sovereign power of God. Meaning that he brings all things in accordance to his will. That's the confidence that the Christian has. And it forms the makeup of the good news of Jesus who died and triumphed over death. See, it's the truth that God reigns over all that allows us to publish peace. This is how you have peace. That God made a way for us to have peace with him and peace with other people through the cross of Jesus Christ as he takes us out of the kingdom of the world and transfers us to the kingdom of God and puts in each of us a new heart. We're a new creation. We have a, we have a mind that's been clicked on through illumination. We can see the beauty of the gospel, that the gospel is not just for those to get saved, but it's for all of us who are saved to live. That's the beauty of the gospel is the power of God to help us live for him. And that is good news, which is a pleasure to share. Why would, be, why would we ever be ashamed of telling someone that Jesus Christ wants to save him or her? In fact, look at verse 8. The watchmen, those who tell of the good news, the ones who have seen the Lord, the Christians, they are the joyful ones. We're the watchmen. And we get to shout it out to all those around us. Our God was victorious. Our King is returning. And he reigns even over our enemies. And it's only the Christian of all people on this planet who can joyful, joyfully proclaim the good news to those around them. Listen to how Peter said it. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may what? Do you see that word? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now I'm going to ask you a question before I share with you a closing story. Are you proclaiming the good news to those around you? You have to answer that alone. I can't answer it for you. I can only answer it for me. And I'm going to tell you that your answer to that question will determine whether your feet are beautiful or ugly. Are you proclaiming the good news, the gospel... To those around you, or are you ashamed of it? See, there's, one, there's more than one way to evidence shame. One of the main ways is just to be too embarrassed to talk about it. It was April 1912. A man and his daughter started on their way from London to America. He was traveling from England, where he had started pastoring and he eventually began to pastor two churches, one in London and the other one in, in Glasgow. His name was John Harper. I'm showing you a picture of him. He was 39 years old in April of 
1912 when he began this journey. He was widowed. His wife had died and left him a six-year-old daughter, Nana. Who, and she grew up, he, he had rather, grown up in a strong Christian home. When he was 13 years old, he put his faith in Christ when he heard the good news of the gospel. And he began going up and down the streets by night. He worked at a mill during the day. By night, he preached the gospel, the good news, to anybody who would listen from every street corner. He started a church. In 1886, I think it was, with 25 people, he's a young man, 17 years old, if I remember the, the age right, grew to over 500 people. He attracted the attention of Moody Church in Chicago, and they called him to become their next pastor. This is why he and his daughter, Nana, boarded a colossal ship, one that you're familiar with, called the RMS Titanic. Along with an estimated 2,222 other passengers, they began the voyage to America. Two days into that voyage at 11.40 p.m. on April 14th, the largest ship that had ever been built struck an iceberg, a glancing blow on the starboard or right-hand side of the ship. It was the beginning of the end for more than 1,500 people. Harper got his six-year-old daughter to a lifeboat. They were accepting women and children first. They would have allowed him, since he was a widower, to join her in that boat, but he declined. He left her in the boat in the care of adults, and then he began to run to everybody on the ship as it was beginning to list, everybody who would listen. He's telling them how they could be saved in Jesus Christ. Even after the ship began to go under and people were forced to jump into the freezing waters of the North Atlantic, he swam person to person to person, stopping only long enough to ask them a question. Are you saved? And if they answered no, he would tell them this verse from Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You'll see it on the screen. He kept saying it to person after person. And he finally came to one man floating on a piece of debris. He asked him, are you saved? And the man said, no. John Harper shared Acts 16.31, pleading with him, to put his faith in Jesus, told them the good news, and swam to the next person after he took his life jacket off and handed it to that man said, here, you need this more than I do. The current brought him back to that man just a minute or two later, and he said to him again, are you saved now? And the man said, I cannot honestly say that I am. And again, John Harper quoted Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And losing his hold on the side of that piece of debris, Harper slipped below the surface and drowned. Now this story was told four years later in Toronto, in Ontario rather, at a survivor's meeting, those who survived the sinking of the Titanic. And he shared how John Harper shared the good news with him. And he closed his recounting of that moment with these words. Quote, I am John Harper's last 
convert. End quote. The voice of your watchmen, verse 8. They lift up their voice, they speak, they proclaim. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Christian, you and I are the watchmen. We have seen Jesus. The light has turned on. He offered the ransom and became our redeemer by dying on the cross and rising to life for us. Where he sits at his father's side and reigns. We've got to lift up our voices and sing for joy. For we have good news of Jesus Christ to share with those who are still in bondage. When's the last time that you shared the good news of the gospel with someone who does not believe? When's the last time? Your feet are not beautiful unless you are proclaiming it. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who proclaim the good news.